this week. Agreement in principle announced for PREPA restructuring. PG&E judge defers power purchase agreement ruling and California governor releases wildfire report. Neiman TSA support grows. PetSmart crossholders seek to inhibit settlement. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we each week bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Karen Lung. Later this episode, we'll hear from Reorg Emerging Markets team lead Kyle Owusu and corporate credit analyst Brandon Liu. Kyle and Brandon will discuss the Argentine power sector, Henea and YPF. Stay tuned. It's Sunday, April 14th. A busy week in news for PG&E culminated on Friday with the release of a report from California Governor Gavin Newsom on wildfires and utilities that's been anticipated for months. It detailed the findings of the governor's strike team charged with, quote, examining California's catastrophic wildfires, climate change, and our energy future. In a section of the report entitled Fair Allocation of Catastrophic Wildfire Damages, the report detailed three solutions. Concept one, a liquidity-only fund, which would create a fund to provide liquidity for utilities to pay wildfire damage claims pending CPUC determination of whether or not these claims are appropriate for cost recovery and may be coupled with modification of cost recovery standards. Concept two, changing strict liability to a fault-based standard. This concept would involve modification of California's strict liability standard under inverse condemnation to one based on fault to balance the need for public improvements with private harm to individuals. And concept three, wildfire fund. This concept would create a wildfire fund coupled with a revised cost recovery standard to spread the cost of catastrophic wildfires more broadly. The governor's office also called for, quote, reform of the California Public Utilities Commission, including more defined guidelines for how the commission will determine what costs can reasonably be passed through to ratepayers. Earlier in the week, Judge Dennis Montali had deferred ruling on the PG&E debtor's request for a preliminary injunction against FERC until at least May 3rd. The judge noted that the court would not necessarily issue its decision immediately after that date. During the course of the argument at a hearing Wednesday, Judge Montali explored the possibility that the dispute regarding the court's jurisdiction over the debtor's potential rejection of power purchase agreements could be resolved consensually with agreed-upon language in the applicable order. Also, the Utility Reform Network, or TURN, a consumer watchdog that advocates for ratepayers before the California Public Utility Commission and other public entities, filed a motion Wednesday evening seeking the appointment of an official committee of ratepayer claimants in the PG&E bankruptcy. According to the filing, neither the debtors nor the official committee of unsecured creditors support the appointment of a separate committee of ratepayer claimants. The official tort claimants committee has, quote, elected not to take a position, states the motion. Also, on Thursday, PG&E announced that former state and federal regulator Nora Brownell would chair the newly formed PG&E board. Neiman Marcus filed an AK Thursday morning, disclosing that as of April 5th, the company's transaction support agreement had been executed by holders of approximately 98% of the outstanding principal amount of term loans and holders of approximately 91% of the aggregate principal amount of the unsecured notes. 
The 8K also provides detail regarding an April 10th amendment to the TSA to provide that the senior debentures due 2028 of the Neiman Marcus Group LLC, quote, will be secured by equal and rateable liens on certain owned real estate properties, real estate grand leases, and real estate operating leases of the issuer and its subsidiaries and on shares of capital stock and indebtedness of any subsidiary, that's any subsidiary as defined under the 2028 debentures indenture, in each case, peri with the extended term loans, and will receive a second priority unsecured guarantee from a new subsidiary that will hold certain real estate leases. This week also saw progress in the lawsuit between Marble Ridge and Neiman. On Wednesday, Texas State Court Judge Tanya Parker denied Marble Ridge's motion to dismiss Neiman's counterclaims for defamation and business disparagement. Oral argument in the dispute was heard on March 21st. The PetSmart term loan amendment saga also continued this week. Paul Weiss, counsel to a group of PetSmart crossholders, sent a letter earlier this week to Robbins Russell, counsel to term loan agent Wilmington Trust, asking that the agent refrain from entering into a settlement agreement with the company, which is a closing condition to a term loan amendment proposed by the company becoming effective, according to sources. In the letter, the crossholder group's counsel takes issue with the process around the amendment and gathering consents from lenders, as well as the release included in the settlement agreement, which it says is overly broad. The group points to PetSmart's transferring 20% of the Chewy stock to Argos Holdings and an additional 16.5% to an unrestricted subsidiary, which violated the company's indentures in addition to the credit agreement, the sources said. The proposed amendment would lead to settlement of the Chewy litigation and in return provide consenting lenders with a 50 basis point consent fee, a higher interest rate margin, and tighter covenants, as well as a $250 million paydown at par within 12 months of the amendment becoming effective. PetSmart noted in an earnings release that holders of 90% of the term loan had consented to the amendment. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, a hectic week saw a motion Tuesday by the PROMESA Oversight Board, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AFAF, and Assured Guarantee, disclosing that the parties, along with an ad hoc group of uninsured Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority bondholders, holding more than $3 billion of uninsured bonds, have reached an agreement in principle for a definitive restructuring support agreement. The filing said that negotiations to date with National Public Finance Guarantee Corporation and Syncora Guarantee have not been successful, and no agreement with those parties has been reached. The motion sought a two-week extension of the opposition deadline hearing date and other deadlines related to the bond insurer's motion seeking relief from the automatic stay in the PREPA case. Those extensions were granted by Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Thursday. Also on Wednesday, AFAF Executive Director Christian Sabrino announced a Puerto Rico Infrastructure Financing Authority, Puerto Rico Ports Authority bond deal. He said this is a novel avenue in Puerto Rico's debt restructuring drive that focuses on the future success of the island economy and shows what is possible for other smaller debtors. Under the deal between AFAF on behalf of PREFA and Ports, and an ad hoc group holding more than 90% of the outstanding series 2011B PREFA Ports Authority project bonds, bondholders will tender all of their holdings of PREFA Ports bonds for a pro rata share of 
One, the distribution made to PREFA under the COFINA Title III plan on account of $91.5 million of junior COFINA bond claims held by PREFA. And two, a $40 million promissory note to be issued by ports. In exchange, the Puerto Rico Industrial Tourist Educational Medical and Environmental Control Facilities Financing Authority, or AFICA, will issue new bonds to the ad hoc group in a face amount equal to the projected cash flow of the property. Sabrina told Reorg in an interview that this deal uses a, quote, financial restructuring as a method for economic development and not the other way around. On Thursday, the Lawful Constitutional Debt Coalition filed a series of pleadings related to the debt limit litigation brought jointly by the PROMESA Oversight Board and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors in the Title III cases. According to Sushil Karpalani of Quinn Emanuel, counsel for the coalition, Puerto Rico's constitution requires that payments made by the central government for debt service on PBA bonds that are guaranteed by the Commonwealth be counted toward the debt limit. As such, Karplani said, a faithful application of the Constitution means that GO bonds and guarantees issued after March 2012 could not have been backed by the Commonwealth's full faith and credit, which he said is made clear by language added to the Constitution in 1961. The Lawful Constitutional Debt Coalition holds more than $1 billion in Puerto Rico's GO and PBA bonds issued prior to March 2012. And finally, during a Thursday press conference to enact new energy policy legislation, Governor Ricardo Rosseo defended his administration's plans to aggressively pursue the development of renewable power in Puerto Rico. He also dismissed criticism by some federal officials and members of Congress, as typical of the complaints often lodged against proposed large-scale transformations. The Puerto Rico Energy Policy Law, Senate Bill 1121, sets new renewable energy targets of 20% penetration by 2022, 60% by 2040, and 100% by 2050. The governor said the new energy public policy complements Law 120, which establishes the framework for the privatization of prepper generation assets and the long-term lease of its transmission and distribution system. The governor said the policy will ensure a new, resilient, and reliable energy system that will be customer-centric and enable residential and business clients to pursue their own energy solutions. Now, for a few other developments this week for a basket of names. Alta Mesa announced that it had retained Perella Weinberg and Tudor Pickering as the company drew down substantially all of its remaining revolver capacity. Reorg learned that a group of Fusion Connect first-lane term lenders is working with Davis Polk. Ensco announced that it completed its merger with Rowan. Reorg also issued an article on the potential for Ensco's 3% convertible notes to receive a double-dip claim in a hypothetical bankruptcy. Reorg learned that Air Methods reported an 18.9% drop in fiscal 28 EBITDA year-over-year. The helicopter company is targeting $40 million of air medical cost savings. Right Aid guided to a decline in EBITDA for fiscal 2020 as the company continues to try and reduce costs to offset anticipated reductions in its transition services agreement with Walgreens. And this week, 
Reorg released a cash flow analysis on Tesla ahead of the company's first quarter results, initiated coverage on McGraw-Hill Education, and published a new tear sheet for Halcon Resources. Other top red stories of the week were J.Crew exploring strategic alternatives, including Madewell IPO, names Michael J. Nicholson as interim CEO. Windstream unsecured notes trustee U.S. Bank warns against dip provisions, quote, complicating unity master lease issues, says debtors have failed to protect unsecured note holders. And mattress firm CEO Steve Stagner resigns. And now here's Jim Holloway back this week with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor. Good morning, all. It's springtime in Houston, meaning it's 90 degrees and all kinds of thunderstorms. Turning right to it, though, April 15th is, of course, the day the government gets there, so make sure you file if you've not already. And for Bristow, it's the expiration of the grace period for their delayed 10Q filing. And we're looking for a Chapter 11 filing from Jones Energy, which is up there in that part of the scoop stack that some call the merge company, of course, has an RSA in place with the first liens and the unsecureds. It's pre-packed with full equitization. There is a TRO injunction hearing in Windstream, a stay relief hearing in Verity, a second day hearing in PHI, and oh, there's this, which sounds fun. The Public Utilities Commission of the great state of California is holding a public forum on the future of PG&E. Hope somebody's going to live stream that. Anyways, Tuesday, April 16th, weekly TSA report expected from the island of Puerto Rico. And in Peabody Coal, there are oral arguments at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. And this is related to an order barring various government entities in the aforementioned great state of California, including Marin County, the nursery of such groovy rock bands as the Grateful Dead, Hot Tuna, and the Quicksilver Messenger Service, man, from pursuing nuisance-based environmental lawsuits against Peabody. Windstream is up again, this time with the second day and final dip hearing. In Acido, there is a sale hearing for the Chemical Plus business. And if you've been following the brawl between J. Alex and McKenzie, there's a hearing on McKenzie settlement with U.S. trustee and the Alpha Natural Resources, Sun Edison, and Westmoreland matters. Wednesday, April 17th, sale hearing in Verity, and a continued sale order enforcement hearing in Westmoreland. Thursday, April 18th, Tesla. On April 4th, of course, Judge Allison Nathan ordered the SEC and Elon Musk to attempt to reconcile. And this is the day that we will find out if they did. I guess there will be a tweet of some sort. We also have an omnibus hearing in Sears and a combined plan and confirmation DS hearing in CTI Foods. And Friday, April 19th, EcoBad, mediation teleconference related to the PIC agent remand appeal. And that's all from me. Back to y'all. Thanks, Jim. And now here are Kyle and Brandon to discuss the Argentine power sector, Hinea and YPF. Thank you. My name is Kyle Owusu. I'm the team lead on the LATAM team under Reorg Emerging Markets, and I'm here with Brandon Liu, our corporate credit analyst. Brandon, you recently initiated coverage on Henea, an Argentine power generator. So today we're going to be talking about Argentina's power sector, Henea, and then an energy company, YPF. Uh, but to kick things off, uh, Brandon, what's the story with Argentina's power generation sector? Yeah, so there's been a very narrow gap between the demand and supply of electricity in the country, which has resulted in a lot of power outages at times of peak consumption in Argentina, usually during the extreme weather seasons. 
And so President Macri's administration has tried to increase supply so it's you know sufficiently above demand for, for electricity in the country. And to achieve this for energy generated from conventional sources, incentive programs have been installed to provi- provide minimum payments for legacy power generators who offer guaranteed availability commitments. And there have also been bidding processes for new thermal energy to be installed to be installed which will offer long-term US dollar denominated contracts and on the renewable side a law was passed in 2015 to promote generation from renewable sources of energy and the objective here is that by the end of 2025 20 about 20% of the total demand for energy in the country will be covered by renewable sources of energy. And in order to achieve this, some of the country's biggest off-takers of energy agreed to cover 8% of the demand by the end of 2017. And going forward, this percentage will increase every two years until that 20% objective is met. Great. Thanks. That's very interesting. So you've got the government um, putting in place initiatives to help um, boost demand and try to incentivize uh, power companies to uh, to to produce more. Um, are there a lot? Of, are there a lot of companies taking advantage of this? Yeah. So apart from Hanaya, other big players in the power generation uh, sector in, in Argentina are are MSU Energy and Albanese and also Pampa Energia, which is a, a bigger conglomerate. Got it. Okay, so walk me through Hanea. What does the capital structure look like and where are the bonds trading? Yeah, so Hanea is a privately owned power generation company and is Argentina's leader in wind power, wind power generation in terms of installed capacity. Uh, the company has come to market twice in the last couple of years, raising a total of $500 million to fund its wind farm expansion projects. Um, it's, it's aiming to increase wind energy generation capacity by about 490 megawatts, which would more than double its current installed wind generation capacity, which is about, about, about 400 megawatts right now. So turning to the capital structure, Hanea has about 50 million of restricted subsidiary debt and then roughly 175 million of unrestricted project finance debt. And then turning to the corporate debt at the parent company level, the, com- the company has about $525 million of outstanding bonds related to its, uh, to its 8.75 senior unsecured notes due in 2022. Uh, it also has 70 million of local bond debt, which comes due in 2020 and a roughly $50 million private shareholders note, which comes due also in 2022. So uh, we're looking at a potential liquidity stress point there in 2022 with the private notes and the $500 million bond. Um, As of December 31st, the company's net leverage at its corporate and restricted subsidiary level was at about 4.6 times and that's right above its 4.5 times threshold in its indenture. Um, and at the beginning of January, Hanea's 2022 bonds were trading with a yield of about 13%. The yield then fell by around 200 basis points to yield at around yield around 
11% throughout February. But then the Argentine peso further sold off against the dollar and the price of the bonds have fallen again and are now currently quoted around 88 to yield about 14.5%. Got it. So you have um, this capital structure, which seems to be at least at least at the corporate level, sort of heavily dominated by um, the unsecured debt. Um, are all of the the, the power projects, uh, do they all sit within the bond group or do you have some, some stuff that's unrestricted? No, yeah. So it's, it's, it's split up. So Hanea's total in, installed generation capacity is about 1,040 megawatts and about 60% of that is energy from conventional sources while 40% of it is energy from renewable sources. And you're splitting with within the um, bond group and, and the unrestricted group, about 54% of the operating capacity is with the company's unrestricted subsidiaries, but there's actually more wind capacity under the under those unrestricted subs. Um, and also about 60% of the capacity under construction is with the unrestricted subs. So you know, once all of those projects come online, there will be um, some more operating capacity that's, there, in total, there will be more operating capacity that's unrestricted. And are these New York law bonds? Yep, uh, the, the indenture and the notes are governed by New York law. Okay, so let's, um, you know, I'm just looking at exploring the, the optimistic case here. I mean, you've got um, almost 15% yield to maturity. Yes, leverage is high right now, but the company's spending um, about a billion, I think, next year on renewable energy projects. So, in theory, at least, you know, that leverage should decline as you get more cash coming in from the PPAs. And you've got the country um, obviously incentivizing power producers to uh, address that 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 supply demand issue that you pointed out. Um, and Hene is unique because it's focusing on wind power. So, you know, putting all that together, obviously, that's sort of the bull case or part of it, at least. Um, what am I missing as far as concerns here? Yeah, I mean, those those are all strong points and, and definitely strong cases for the outlook of the company. But um, you know, looking at the investor presentation by the company that was put out a few weeks ago, you know, the, the presentation seems to su- suggest that from now until around 2021 is a period during which all of its expansion projects, which which you know, it, it's outlined very in a very detailed way, and and you know, the company seems very excited about those projects. Uh, those from in the next two three years, those projects will be under construction, and and it, so after that point, it could be you know all all of the the capacity will be online, but by, by then, uh, so there's some uncertainty surrounding that, and also since the majority of the company's power purchase agreements or PPAs, you know, the, 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 um, the contracts that the company enters for its, its installed capacity, uh, the, the contracts that are tied to the wind energy projects are not take or pay contracts. And so there is no set amount of megawatts that Camesa, which is the administrator of Argentina's wholesale electricity market has to purchase. Um, so Hanea is really relying pretty heavily on these expansion projects to deliver sufficient utilization rates in order to profit from these contracts. And if Hanea does not generate the cash that it, it had originally forecasted from the PPAs tied to its expansion projects, it, it'll be pretty difficult for the company to bring down its, its leverage. 
Okay. Um, so you mentioned Camessa, the uh, the administrator of um, Argentina's wholesale electricity markets. Um, but but you also said, I know earlier, that the contracts um, are going to be in USD. So, so does that completely mitigate um, the FX risk then? No. So that's a good question. So the the counterparty, uh, Comesa is the counterparty for for about eighty percent of the contracts um, that Hanaya details in its prospectus um, with both combining thermal energy contracts and and wind energy contracts. But Hanaya has mentioned that it has it's had difficulties collecting amounts due from Comesa. As it as the administrator has been running a continuous budget deficit, and it's had a history of delaying payments to various market players, and Hanea said that the payments are often only made in part because of exchange rate differences, and so so with respect to the contracts, besides for a couple of smaller generation projects, which are which are denominated in pesos, the majority of these contracts are payable by Camesa to the company and are denominated in U.S. dollars. And um, so they're denominated in U.S. dollars. They're payable in Argentine pesos. Um, but but so the recent sell-off in the peso has contributed quite a bit to to the shortfall in payments owed by Camesa. Um, so, so that kind of implies that the FX risk is still there despite the contracts being denominated in and USD. I got it. I guess if the if the contracts are denominated in US dollars and the US dollar appreciates against the peso, you end up having to pay more out in Argentine pesos. So in in that way, you are sort of exposed to USD risk. Exactly. So so yeah, that Camesa probably has has not you know been been prepared for this um, this extreme sell off of the peso, and that's that's really hurt. Got it. Got it. And I understand. Um, I think you sort of touched upon this earlier, but yeah, I mean, Hanea's sponsors have been pretty active um, supporting the company. Do you want to just shed a little light on that? Yeah. So that's that's a good point. And I so I surprised just point out that Argentum Investments, uh, the Argentine focused arm of Point State Capital, owns about 44 percent of Hanea Capital stock, and FinTech Energy owns about twenty five percent. Uh, and then shareholder contributions in total, um, including a couple of its individual um, sh- owners since 2015, have totaled about $220 million, uh, made up of $170 million of equity injections and a $50 million private note, which was issued at just at the end of 2018. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, let's move to the to the political front, which is, seems to be um, a topic that comes up frequently when talking when discussing Argentina. Um, so, what are you what are you paying attention to there? Yeah. So, I, I'd first point to June 22nd, which is is when a list of candidates who are running is for president. That is is closed, and the presidential candidates become. Pu- become known to the public a couple days after on the 24th. Uh, polls are expecting a runoff between current President Mauricio Macri and Christina Kirchner, who served as president from 2007 to 2015. Uh, both right now have highly unfavorable ratings in, in the early 2019 polls. Um, it seems like consensus opinion that if Kirchner wins, the probability of default will, will increase. Um, local elections are also 
are also something to look at uh, that will start taking place as early as next week and will run through September. Uh, one important one is September 7th, which marks the, the governor and mayor primaries for Buenos Aires. And I, I would say more more volatility in a peso is expected as, as elections near and you know the the conversations of how debt will be the the country's debt will be repaid um you know become more topical and more central got it so so if i'm if i heard you correctly the consensus opinion is is that kirchner um to say the least uh, has a chance against mockery but but you know likely will 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 give um it will be a very close race um and uh if kirchner wins the probability of default is higher um, so what, how, how should we think about, um, you know, as it relates directly to Hene and some of Hene's peers, the probability of a complete reversal in policy related to renewable energy, um, if, if CFK wins? Yeah. So, so I, I would agree. Definitely investors are at least, you know, preparing and, and thinking about scenarios for when, uh, Kirch, for if, you know, if Kirchner were, were to win the election, uh, but actually, both Kirchner and Macri have have geared their energy policies uh, to, to support the use of renewable energy sources. Uh, for example, Kirchner established Law Twenty Seven One Ninety One in in twenty fifteen to promote renewable sources of energy, uh, which which I spoke a little about about uh, a little earlier. But this is where the 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 large off takers entered renewable energy contracts to cover 8% of total energy um, and then you know will eventually increase that percentage every couple of years to meet that uh, 20% threshold so that 20% of total energy demanded is covered by renewable sources uh, the goal is to meet that by 2025 and that 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 law is still in place so so that's that's been a boost for for that sector um, and then Macri similarly has, has initiated the the Renovar program, which is designed to substantially increase the country's rene- renewable uh, generation capacity by bringing private expertise and financing via com- competitive renewable energy tenders and br- bidding processes. And so that that's been that's been a little more recent, but it's um, it's resulted in in. You know companies that we've talked about, Hinea and uh, and MSU and, and the likes of of um, you know pursuing those those renewable energy and wind contracts. Great. So so I guess just to recap, um, you know you've got a company here in Hinea that has been taking advantage of uh, a policy to address um, the the shortage of electricity generation in Argentina, um, specifically focusing on bringing online um, wind and ener- wind wind capacity. Um, the company has invest is is going to invest uh, about a billion of capex to bring online capacity. And uh, you know, on the one hand, you could see a dramatic decline in leverage. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are risks coming from um, the counterparty Comesa, um, and there are also some political risks, risks, um, but those could be related more to the, the volatility of the peso because um, you're not really expecting um, a, a dramatic uh, policy reversal. Does that sound um, all in line? That's, that's, that's about the, um, 
you know, the ex- extent of, of Hanea. Great, great. And I'm glad you, uh, you corrected yourself to when you said when, when Kirchner wins the election, I just want to be clear that reorg research has no, no dog in this race. No, <laughs> not, not at all. <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, let's turn to, uh, to YPF. Um, do you mind just walking us through that situation, the capital structure, et cetera? Yep. So, so YPF is Argentina's largest, um, oil and gas producer, um, you know, sim- it's, a, it's partly state, it's half state owned. And, um, and so for, for its capital structure and, and its debt situation, as of mm-hmm. December 31st, YPF consolidated, its, its consolidated net leverage was 2.2 times uh, and it had net debt of about 7.2 billion. Um, YPF has roughly $800 million of bank debt, which of which about uh, 220 million is secured, and about and it also has about 840 million dollars of trade loans, uh, and then after that, corporate debt represents the majority of the cap of the cap stack, uh, a little more than 80 percent of the company's uh, total debt, and um, all all corporate debt comprises of uh, senior unsecured bonds with without any guarantees. Um, all notes are issued by the parent company, and all um, all the bonds, all the U.S. dollar-denominated bonds, are are governed by New York law. Uh, right now, the company's six point nine five percent twenty twenty seven bonds, which are the company's most recent issue, uh, which uh, were issued in twenty seventeen, they trade around eighty six uh, to yield about nine and a half percent. Great. Um, so, what are what are YPF's uh, strategic goals over the next five years? So, YPF is planning to spend about four to five billion dollars per year from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty three, which is uh, you know on a per year basis would represent more than double the investments in any of its past four fiscal years. Uh, management has said of this spending about seventy five percent of 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 this amount will go to its upstream segment and within upstream about 70% of that will go to unconventional production. And, um, company executives have said that they expect upstream production growth, uh, to come almost entirely from unconventional resources, meaning, uh, specifically the exploit exploitation of shale oil and gas, uh, from Argentina's, Vaca Muerta formation, um, but right now, as it stands, the company is not generating enough cash flow to to cover the proposed increases in capex over the next, uh, you know, its, it's five year plan. So, so the and on its most recent call, the YPF CFO uh, said that the company could, and you know, given the right opportunity, come come back and and uh, you know issue more debt if if necessary. And, and like I said, given if 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 there's a good opportunity that presents itself. So uh, that's definitely would be something to, to keep an eye on. And why is, uh, why is everyone so, so excited about this Vaca Muerta uh, formation? Yeah, so there's a ton of hype around it. Uh, Vaca Muerta is the most important, important bearer of unconventional resources in Argentina. And YPF holds interests in 40% of the area, which is the largest by far of any single company. Um, Within Vaca Muerta, 
Loma Campana, which is, um, like I said, part of the formation, is the largest shale oil and gas field outside of North America. Um, YPF, Chevron, Dow, and Petronas have said they plan to invest upward of $25 billion in Vaca Muerta over the next few years. Um, and also investors and EMP companies see an enormous untapped potential here as only 4% of, of Vaca Muerta's acreage has entered the development phase so far and and only 23% has been granted concessions. So I mean, the, the untapped potential there is, is just huge. And Vaca Muerta, you know, even given just that small percent that's in the, that's in the development phase right now, uh, Vaca Muerta already accounts for over 60% of the country's shale oil reserves, uh, which is the fourth largest shale uh, oil reserve in the world. Okay, so um, I guess my question here is somewhat somewhat similar to the the question with Hinea. I mean, you've got the 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 company's leverage is is probably higher than than you would like it given um, given where we are in the credit cycle and where Argentina is um, in its economic cycle. But um, I mean, it's it as you pointed out, you've got this tremendous untapped potential, and you know, in theory, um, with 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 a company investing four to five billion a year uh, over the next five years, you could see um, an in, increase in cash as as some of that production comes online. Um, plus, you've got um, global interest in this in this formation. So as as more operators start to come into the Vacamerta, you could see costs come down, which would only benefit. YPF as a as a first mover. Um, so, you know why uh, why shouldn't I be bullish on the credit? What are your concerns here? Yeah. So, I mean, if you were just to look at you know, their top line revenue and, and EBITDA over the last few years, it's the growth has been pretty strong. You know, especially in in peso terms uh, with with all of that inflation. But for the for the upstream segment, production has actually been declining or flat over the last three years. Um, and, and production of, uh, you know, that, so that was speaking about uh, crude oil. Uh, production of natural gas and NGLs also has fallen in the last couple of years. Uh, and despite forecasting a total production decline of 2 to 3% in 2019, uh, on his last call, the YPF CEO said he's confident that production growth will eventually reach 5% on a sustainable basis on, on last earnings call. So, so, uh, he didn't. He didn't give a, a timeline for that, but you know, it, it's not. Doesn't seem like it's in the very imminent future. Um, with respect to natural gas, the uh, the company management was counting on the approval for um, of subsidies for additional projects in the Vaca Muerta area um, from the Secretary of Energy for the start of 2019. Uh, but that plan was was recently revised, and actually, no new projects are being approved at this time. And so that's, that's another you know, cause for concern there. Um, and, and with respect to this program that's, that was recently revised, um, this, the changes are affecting both new projects that the company sub- submitted, um, for regulatory approval, as well as, uh, the return from ongoing projects operating under the, this, this program, uh, which are currently receiving res- subsidiaries, which will be scaled back. Um, and then looking at the downstream segment, uh, which is very exposed to foreign exchange risk, um, YPF has said that 
the you know the recent inflationary environment uh, due to the the volatile the volatile Argentine peso, uh, it's it's difficult for the company to pass uh, prices through the pump, uh, which meaning you know with all of its uh, gas stations and and uh, you know, refined products, uh, the company has shouldered a lot of that recent inflation to a lot of the you know the recent volatile volatility in in the um, in the peso and and um, you know it's taken on. Uh, a, a large portion of of those inflationary pressures. Got it. So I guess the, the, to to summarize, there's there's the execution risk because uh, you really need to reverse these production declines, and and you're sort of relying on management's word. Um, there is the the regulatory risk associated with um, getting getting regulatory approval from some of these new projects, and then of course. Um, the the FX risk um, with with the downstream segment, which which is huge, and and as you as we've discussed uh, and as you pointed out, there could be a lot more FX volatility going into uh, election season. Um, so anything else um, that we should be on the lookout for in the next um, half a year to a year? Yeah. So I'll just point out uh, the company has one. Um, non-US and non-Argentine denom- uh, Argentine peso denominated bond. Uh, it's, it's actually a Swiss franc denominated bond, which is due in September uh, with a little over $300 million in principal outstanding. Uh, the company does have solid liquidity right, liquidity right now, uh, so so they could probably just pay that down. But if if they were to look to refinance, they could face some difficulty as... as um, as you know, there haven't been many Argentine international issuances in the past uh, six months or so from from corporates, and right now investor confidence in Argentina is is quite low with with you know things that we mentioned like the the currency movement and and the upcoming elections. Uh, I'm also keeping an eye on uh, production and capex for for the company. Uh, so so on their last earnings call, management was confident that the company could stay within its target net leverage ratio of 1.5 times to two times uh, despite increasing capex while production is declining and they also came out and said that for 2019 EBITDA um, will will likely re- just remain flat and at least in terms um, in US dollar terms uh, so the, those things are you know definitely some something um definitely some cause for concern and um you know definitely we'll keep an have to keep an eye on it great thanks brandon and uh thanks for running us through some of these argentine credits certainly a lot to uh look out for and monitor in the, in the coming year with the elections and what effect that has on uh, fx and sort of how that plays out with all of the credits that we cover um and i imagine we will be uh discussing argentina probably on the uh, the next latam podcast as well so that's something to look forward to. Thanks and take care. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all podcasts on our site's media page, on iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelton.